Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. Speaking of that, this week, Mark and Margaret are speaking with Dr. Rick Bright, renowned immunologist, vaccine scientist, newly appointed senior vice president of pandemic prevention and response at the Rockefeller Foundation. Dr. Bright resigned last year from BARDA at the HHS after filing a formal whistleblower complaint against the previous administration for mishandling of the pandemic. He is launching a bold initiative at the Rockefeller Foundation to build out a national and global infrastructure to improve pandemic preparedness and response. Lori Robertson also checks in, managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Rick Bright from the Rockefeller Foundation here on Conversations on Healthcare. Speaking today with Dr. Rick Bright, renowned immunologist, vaccine scientist, and newly appointed senior vice president of pandemic prevention and response at the Rockefeller Foundation. Dr. Bright recently served on President Biden's COVID-19 transition team. Uh, Prior to that, he was deputy assistant secretary of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority at HHS. He resigned from the Trump administration after filing a whistleblower complaint over its mishandling of the pandemic response. Dr. Bright has worked in numerous capacities at the Department of Health and Human Services, at the CDC, and the World Health Organization. His global health research has led to key advancements in vaccine and therapeutic developments. Dr. Bright, we welcome you to Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you both, it's a pleasure to be here. Great, you know, it it, it seems like uh, SARS-CoV-2 caught the global uh, public health community ill-prepared for the magnitude of what was to come and, and I know our listeners want to know more about the pandemic prevention and response initiative that you're spearheading at the Rockefeller Foundation uh, that really is focused on scaling up the capacity for surveillance uh, and better management. Share with us and tell us more about this initiative and the impact that it's going to have on the current pandemic as well as those to come. You know, first I wanted to say it's about a year ago today. Yeah that the World Health Organization made their formal pandemic declaration for what we now know as COVID-19. And uh, since the SARS-CoV-2 virus and these variants of the virus have taken an enormous toll on lives, on economies and societies, and they've actually changed normal into something we're still striving to define. And despite everything that we have lost, we are unfortunately still in no better position today to be able to rapidly detect and respond to or stop one of these viruses or variants of a virus from emerging. Because we still don't have a robust national or global early warning detection system or surveillance system to give the world that early warning that something new has happened, it can cause a lot of damage and it's coming your way. So it is critical that we establish this global system to collect different types of data data that are combined to provide a more valuable insight or guidance to inform policymakers and governments and public health officials around the world that a threat is coming their way and sometimes even change the course of action in the face of a rapidly spreading virus such as the SARS-CoV-2 virus that we're dealing with now. 
So the Rockefeller Foundation, they have been making inroads in analyzing data around the world, uh, focused on equity and access, improving health around the world. And this is a culmination of, of many years of their thought that were catalyzed by this pandemic to launch an initiative, a global consortium that will collect a variety of data sets to better understand when something new has emerged. The genomic data, the, the epidemiological data to understand where the viruses are coming from, how the viruses are different in different parts of the world, the geographical mapping of those viruses and how they're spreading, and of course, that functional data. Is the virus, there's a mutation in the virus. Mm -hmm. Does it mean anything? Does it change transmissibility? All of those multiple layers of data are what we plan to bring together into one institute, one system that will be able to very rapidly turn around those insights to inform governments, concentrate resources, and stop a pandemic within the first 100 days of it appearing. Well, Dr. Bright, you know, I think on, on this anniversary, and I think it is an anniversary we will long uh, remember, one of the bright spots, I think, has been uh, the way there was some collaboration and coming together, I think particularly in the way that the uh, scientists and virologists and epidemiologists came together around developing the vaccine. But maybe just tell us a little more about this consortium when you think of the, the worldwide engagement that's needed in order to tackle something that you describe, what is that built upon? Is it built upon government, the World Health Organization? Tell us a little more about how you envision that consortium working. Mm -hmm. Well, as you mentioned, it's gonna take everyone around the world working with the same data sets, the same the types of standards, equitable access to the information all at once. I think it was really a surprise to most of the world that the United States would find ourselves in such a challenging position to respond quickly and effectively to this pandemic or any pandemic. I think that ties back to a lack of a nationally coordinated strategic plan. Mm -hmm. I think we see that in many parts of the world. And so we want to lay out a blueprint and that's what we're doing in the United States. And that's what we're also um, in conversation with the United Kingdom and how they brought together a consortium within the UK that brings together these various facets. Align within our country, the ability to detect these various multidimensional characteristics of a rapid, rapidly emerging threat and spreading threat and characterize it quickly and understand it and inform politicians and, and public health advisors but then also work with our international partners in, in, in philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation and Skoll and Wellcome Trust and Institute Pasteur, uh, working with WHO to not each of us build our own system with our own language and our own processes and our own computer systems and our own databases, but to align with those organizations into one coordinated system. Imagine the weather system. How does the weather system work around the world? In the United States, we have NOAA, and they collect lots of information that affects the weather in the United States, and we have a, a national weather service. I think over 195 countries 
feed into a consortium, the World Meteorological Organization, and share those weather sensors and data and reports. And they're all different, but they're able to bring it together. And you can have this really powerful mapping where weather threats are emerging around the world. I can go to that site right now and give a forewarning that a tsunami is coming your way. We need to think about viruses in the same way as we think about weather. And that is a globally coordinated system of understanding, tracking, and warning in an equitable, real-time manner that threats are coming your way. And here are actions that you can consider to help mitigate the damage. Well, I really love that uh, analogy. I think that makes it clearer for people. And the sort of tiering, the geographic mapping, though, multiple data streams all coming into one place. Today, this morning, people are picking up the paper and, and uh, they're seeing the, the vaccine companies have to respond to these various uh, variants, mutations, strains, whatever that are coming. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on currently sort of mapping that out and sort of understanding whether or not science can keep up with the changing mutations. It's coming. What, what do you say to people now who are saying, I love what you just said, uh, and I'm kind of lost because I'm reading all these activities that are going on to deal with uh, with what's happening in the mutations or, or the variants. Well, actually, we're living in remarkable times. Um, I also like to think of it moving forward to a new normal and the convergence of a variety of technologies that are now going to enable us to respond more rapidly to these emerging threats as we face them in the future. It does take this early warning system. And then it also takes the investments, the decades of investments into new vaccine technologies. When I was uh, the director of BARDA, we invested in a number of new purpose-built vaccine technologies, messenger RNA or mRNA. This technology was meant to respond rapidly for a rapidly emerging virus or pathogen to get in front of a pandemic and halt it as quickly as possible. Decades of investment were put into that technology. However, we didn't really see a live fire test except in 2020. 2020, we were given an opportunity to test how rapidly these new technologies. What we saw was remarkable and how quickly they could respond and make a vaccine tailored to the emerging threat as quickly as possible. In less than a year, we had information, enough information to be able to start vaccinating people that were, they were seeing it roll out now. So the variants right now are the biggest threat to the vaccines, but they're more a threat to the vaccination process. So as we've invested in early warning and we can use technology to identify variants, so we need to get much, much faster at it because right now we're identifying a variant about four months after it emerges. But already we're seeing that we can take information about those variants. We can send that information or share that information with these manufacturers, with these technologies. Moderna is already starting a new clinical trial that contains the variant. It not only contains the variant, the B351, that was first identified in South Africa, but it also has another arm of that trial where they're um, testing a multivalent approach. So some of the new variant vaccine composition along with the existing virus composition. I think that only took them about 10 weeks or six to 10 weeks to make that new composition and test it. At the same time, though, we need to still invest in the downstream administration technology. We could make a lot of vaccines, 
but we haven't invested into our public health systems and vaccine administration systems and, and tracking and tracing uh, to understand who needs the first dose. We haven't invested yet in the technologies to remove the barriers to rapidly vaccinating people. There are technologies on the horizon that will allow us to put vaccines in a simple Band-Aid looking patch. And those patches could be distributed much more easily. They can be put in the US mail or distributed around the world in, in courier services to make sure that people are vaccinated more easily. So we're living in remarkable times. Technology is converging. A lot of the investments that we've made over the last couple of decades are battle tested now from this pandemic. They identify work that we still need to do. But I think before we see that next pandemic, we're going to be a lot smarter, a lot faster. And these mm-hmm. ne- new technologies are going to play a critical role in making sure we don't find ourselves in this situation again. Well, on this one year anniversary of the declaration of the global pandemic, I think your, your words bring a lot of uh, hope. But I wonder, as we talk about this unbelievable use of our technology and advancement of the technology uh, to the place where you know, people in the streets actually understand what messenger RNA is, we also have been confronted in this pandemic year with just the tragic inequities in the way different groups of people were affected. And all of the technology will help enormously. But at the same time, there's the the science and the art of changing the way we care for people and the way we bring people into the fold to understand what is going on and comment about the other partners that are really in the business of human behavior uh, and trying to make sure that we attend to that side of things the next time. Well, it's absolutely critical. I, I believe the consortium itself is gonna focus on the, the, the science and technology and data to create that early warning system. And with this new knowledge that is available to everyone around the planet at once, then every country would have equal access to the information that could guide them to contain either that virus or that pathogen within their borders. So technology can only do so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is the human behavior. It is the transparency mm-hmm. of the knowledge and how it is communicated to everyone all at once. And, and an example you just gave, how to break down complex technology language, such as mRNA or messenger RNA, to everyone so they can understand and not be afraid of the technology. Right. I'm from Kansas and, and I um, love my family in Kansas. And compared to a science and technology world I immerse myself in, they lead a pretty normal life. And I'm trying to communicate sometimes to people at, at, everywhere across our country and across the world. Science in my brain is complex for a scientist. And so that highlights a need to invest more in community messengers, to the trusted messengers in every community, in every culture. Uh, We can't communicate across all populations with the same language. And so it's really incumbent upon us to be sensitive to that, to equity, reaching people and communities that are really hard to reach. There's been a a really bad history um, in our country of inappropriate experimentation. Populations have been taken advantage of in the name of advancing science. And we have to overcome them, we cannot dismiss them. And to me, that means an extra responsibility 
on scientists, on public health officials, on, on governments around the world to go the extra mile to reach that last mile. I have to make sure that I'm holding hands with the next person, either in a consortium approach, in my community, to make sure the information is shared and understood at all levels. That is the only way we're going to stop this pandemic and the only way we're going to prevent future pandemics. It will be how we break those data down, that information down, so everyone can understand it to stop a pandemic in its tracks. We're speaking today with Dr. Rick Bright, vaccine scientist, newly appointed senior vice president of pandemic prevention and response at the Rockefeller Foundation. Dr. Bright recently served on President Biden's COVID-19 transition team. You know, I hate to take you backwards because I think you're a forward-looking, optimistic person. And you said science is complex, but ethics is very straightforward and you have them. And I think our our listeners need to know, you really, uh, in the Trump administration, sounded a clarion call. You filed a whistleblower complaint about unproven drugs. You really stood up. And I think that's why people look to you. And you just laid out for us the ethical foundation for whatever has to happen in terms of communication. Can you just walk through a little for our listeners, just to remind them of what you saw and the actions that you took during this last administration? Well, I don't like to go back. Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> I mean, but, but it is a really important yeah. perspective to understand how we got where we are today. And actually, where we are in the United States and where we got in the United States did impact the rest of the world as well. There are so many global experts that knew what was happening, could see the the writing on the wall. A novel virus had emerged in people and populations in China. It was clearly causing uh, disruption. It was clearly spreading person to person and and causing a lot of illness and, and death. And it was clearly spreading out of that region. And it was very frustrating for me as a scientist who has spent my career thinking about a pandemic response and the coordination and transparency and communication needed to get in front of a pandemic and contain it as quickly as possible. And having worked in the previous administration, the Obama administration, with a team of dedicated experts Mm -hmm. to put together a playbook Mm -hmm. for the United States and our role in global communications and partnership with the WHO and other um, global entities whose role and mission was to inform the world of a crisis and to stop it as quickly as possible. Then to find myself in a situation where people weren't listening. The red flags couldn't be any redder. The fire couldn't be any larger. And yet I encountered politicians and political leadership that just seemed completely unwilling to recognize the true threat and to see the delay in the United States and our testing capability. It was frustrating to know that there was virus among us, yet politicians were telling the public that there was no threat or the threat was low because we didn't have it, all based on our lack of testing. And there was information that we knew about on the inside. It was not allowing Americans to prepare for this psychologically, physically, emotionally, for what was coming their way. To see step-by-step our position in the world being dismantled 
And then all of a sudden finding America isolated, trying to figure out things on our own. Academic groups standing up trackers, for example, because the US government wasn't tracking or wasn't sharing information. I was encouraged to see that happening, very frustrated to see it, there was no national leadership. There was no national strategy. So all of these private efforts and academic efforts didn't have a place to go to. They didn't have a central coordinating effort to try to stop the pandemic. And then to see the rest of the world struggling on their own without America's leadership, without America's seat at the table. You know, I, I don't think it could have gone worse. Mm -hmm. But what encouraged me, so here's the optimist in me, <laughs> is that groups continued onward. Scientists in the government, they kept their eye on the ball, pushing forward the development of tests and vaccines and getting that information and supporting those companies to accelerate data so we can get those vaccines and the tests available as quickly as possible. Scientists in the companies worked hand in hand with scientists in the government, hand in hand with scientists at the FDA and at BARDA, NIH and CDC on their own to push forward all of the efforts. I had confidence every day in the integrity of the scientists in the public and private sectors and academic groups doing their work without compromise. So I knew that once we had those tools, they would have high quality. And then, of course, you saw CEPI, the ACT Accelerator, the WHO, the COVAX Group on Vaccines, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, FIND, and the Global Fund. I call those out in particular because they stood up this mm -hmm. international organization called the ACT Accelerator and focused on drugs and diagnostics and vaccines to make those available with a focus on the rest of the world, particularly the heart of the reach, those without access and capabilities. Those groups went on. Fortunately, I'll say that proudly, fortunately, we have an administration change that I believe is impactful in managing through this pandemic and preparing us for the next one. The Biden administration and the people going into the Biden administration have their eye on the ball. We have already seen tremendous impact from their effort, from their focus, from their transparency, from their communication, from their efforts to reach every person in the community, recognizing how hard it is, pulling the chair back up to the global table, investing in this ACT Accelerator and COVAX Institute, reaffirming their partnership with the WHO. That is the type of leadership that the world needs to see from the United States to get us through this pandemic. And I'm confident of the things that they're doing because I had the privilege of serving on an advisory panel for the COVID response during the transition. And I know the blueprint that they put in place to get us through this pandemic and to make sure that this never happens again. I'm so grateful for their efforts and their leadership. We have been speaking today with Dr. Rick Bright. He's the newly appointed Senior Vice President of Pandemic Prevention and Response at the Rockefeller Foundation. And you can learn more about his incredible and important work by going to the rockefellerfoundation.org or follow him on Twitter at Rick A. Bright. Dr. Bright, we want to thank you certainly for your tenacity uh, and your scientific rigor, but also for your honesty and your clear-eyed look at how things unfolded, what went wrong, and your optimism about how we get it right in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Despite claims circulating on social media, there's no evidence that approved COVID-19 vaccines cause fertility loss. Although clinical trials did not study the issue, loss of fertility has not been reported among thousands of trial participants, nor confirmed as an adverse event among millions who have been vaccinated. In fact, some of the vaccine trial participants got pregnant. In early February, reproductive medicine groups released a statement assuring patients that there's no evidence that the approved COVID-19 vaccines can impact the capacity to conceive children. Quote, loss of fertility is scientifically unlikely, the reproductive health experts concluded in their statement. Another document prepared by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine in December said there was no reason to delay pregnancy attempts because of being vaccinated since the vaccine is not a live virus. Multiple false claims tying the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines with infertility have been in circulation, both in English and Spanish, for months. Scientists have already debunked a false rumor that baselessly claimed the vaccines could train the body to attack a protein vital for the formation of the placenta. Dr. Paul Offit, a pediatrician and vaccine expert at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, said people shouldn't be worried about COVID-19 vaccines causing infertility. He said it is very hard for a vaccine to do something that natural infection doesn't do, and fertility loss has not been reported even after roughly 67 million people in the U.S. have been infected with SARS-CoV-2, according to antibody surveillance studies. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Pregnancy is normally an exciting time for most women, but according to the research, an estimated 10% of prenatal women experience some kind of depression during their pregnancy, and many are reluctant to treat their depression with medication for fear of harming the fetus. In fact, a higher percentage are experiencing lower-grade depressive symptoms, so they might not meet full criteria for a major depressive episode, and left untreated, those mild to moderate symptoms can progress, in some cases lead to a more serious postpartum depression. Dr. Cynthia Battle is a psychologist at Brown University with a practice at Women's and Infants Hospital in Providence. She and her colleagues decided to test a cohort of pregnant women to see if a targeted prenatal yoga class might have a positive impact on women dealing with prenatal depression. And it was a typical kind of hatha yoga breathing exercises, meditation exercises. And we enrolled 34 women who are pregnant 
who had clinical levels of depression, and we measured their change in depressive symptoms over that period of time. Not only were women able to manage their depressive incidents, they also bonded with other pregnant women during the program and found additional support from their group. And the initial signs from this research are really encouraging. So we found that women on average were reporting much less. Women who are depressed during pregnancy, unfortunately, do often have less ideal birth outcomes. So one thing we're interested in seeing if when we provide prenatal yoga program, can it improve mood? And then can we even see some positive effects in terms of the birth outcomes? A guided non-medical yoga exercise program designed to assist pregnant women through depression symptoms helping them successfully navigate those symptoms without medication, ensuring a safer pregnancy. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.